The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Uh, Please turn in your Bibles or on your app to Philippians chapter 4, okay? We're going to start in verse 15. Praise the Lord. Uh, Philippians is between Ephesians and Colossians. If you're flipping, it should be in the back third-ish of your Bible, unless yours is in different order. Um, If you don't have a Bible of your own and you want one, we have a ton of them, and we want to give you one for free. We want everyone that wants a Bible to have a Bible, so you can talk to an usher after service, somebody back in the back, uh, in the lounge. We have tons of Bibles, and they are free for you if you want one. Um, If you don't have a Bible or Bible app with you today, we will have the verses on the screen so that you can follow along as we read God's Word, or you can just listen, whatever works best for you. We just want you to be able to follow along. Um, We are going to continue this week in our series. It's called Joy. This will actually be the last week, so we're wrapping up. This will be the 12th week. It's taken us 12 weeks to get through verse by verse uh, four chapters of Philippians, and I just want to thank you guys for um, endurance in the Word and hunger for God's Word. Um, you know, there's some places where a preacher couldn't go verse by verse like this and people like stay excited and hang in there, but you guys have not only done that, you've listened and uh, you've been excited about God's word and um, it's been a real joy to preach through Philippians with you. So thank you guys for uh, your endurance and, and your hunger for God's word. It's been fun. Um, so Uh, Last week, we learned about the joy-producing power of contentment in Christ. If you missed that, uh, I would encourage you, once the podcast hits, to to get get your hands on it and listen to it, um, because contentment in Christ is so crucial uh, for how we live faithfully for Him. This week, we are going to see how extravagant generosity because of Jesus leads to real and everlasting joy. Okay, so we're going to Round out the book of Philippians today, taking verses 15 all the way down to 23. Hopefully you're there. Let's read. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. A fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Praise God for his word. All right, let's uh, come back up to verse 15 and and do what we've done. We're going to go verse by verse, see what the Lord has to say to us. And uh, I'm excited. So verse 15, first of all, um, this fact right here that the Philippian church not only received the gospel, but immediately begin to live it out through extravagant generosity. It so marked and blessed the apostle that he wrote of it to other churches as well. So he doesn't just mention here that they were the ones uh, at the first preaching of the gospel that, that 
shared in the matter of giving and receiving, supporting gospel mission. They were the only ones that did that. He talks to them about it in the midst of thanking them for that, but he also wrote to another church about it. Let me read you this. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to start in verse 1. He says there, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Remember, Philippi is in Macedonia. Paul is referencing Philippi here. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. As Paul writes to this other church about the, the, what he describes here as, first of all, he says, I want to tell you guys about something. And he calls it the grace of God. And, and this grace he talks about that, that was upon the Philippian church, it is an undeniable and it's a visible grace. Why? Because it declares loudly and in no uncertain terms that these people truly loved and trusted the Lord. During a time of great struggle and difficulty, and even in deep poverty, they were overflowing with joy and generosity. The truth is, when, when you truly believe the beauty of the gospel and how generous God has been with us, not only to love us, but to rescue us from sin and death, and also pour out upon us precious promises of provision, when you believe that, when you truly believe that, it, it changes you. We as God's children should be swept up into a self-reinforcing cycle of ever-growing joy and generosity. Our joy in who God is and what God has done should lead to generosity, and then that generosity leads to more and more joy as we see the fruit of it in our own lives and in the work of the kingdom. You see what I'm saying about a self-reinforcing cycle? You've got joy because of what God has done in his gospel and just who he is and his magnificence. Out of that and out of the fact that he's been incredibly generous with you, right? he went first. We didn't love him first. He loved us. So God's been incredibly generous with us through Christ. That should cause us then to be generous with others. And then, and then in that very act, it cultivates and stirs up more joy that leads then to more generosity. And so it's not this begrudging thing, right? God loves a cheerful giver. And if, if giving is done in the context of a, a motivation of love for God and, and because of the beauty of the gospel, it can be. It can be joyous and it can be an encouragement to us to be generous in the name of the Lord. It also can have some pretty profound impacts uh, in other ways. The gospel changes the way we give. Paul says here in 2 Corinthians of the Philippians that they begged for the privilege of participation in supporting the saints. Did you hear that when I read it? They begged for the privilege of participation in supporting the saints. Friends, try, I want you to just play an imagination game with me for a second. Try to imagine how powerfully this type of generosity could affect gospel mission. If Christians were known not as people who may give if someone begs them, but as people who beg for the chance to give. What would that do to some of the negative stereotypes the world has about God's church? 
about those that follow Christ. The very fact that some of you right now are thinking, that's crazy, who would ever beg for the opportunity to give, it proves my point. It is so radically different from normal human behavior, so strange that it points to the fact that something supernatural is happening. It brings strength and validity to the message we are preaching, that the gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. And, and just to answer that thought that, yeah, you know, may, maybe Paul's just embellishing here a little bit about the Philippians, begging him to give. I, I guess, I, I would hope that Paul's credibility and the credibility of the scriptures is higher in your mind than, than mine, but I'll just tell you that I myself on many occasions have, as an eyewitness, I have seen this type of beautiful generosity. I have seen people beg to give. I, I have had homeless folks, I have had many others who are struggling themselves be so moved by the Spirit of God that they begged me to allow them to give to support the ministry we were doing. Like the widow who gave all she had, I have had people empty their pockets of the little bit of change they had and then beg me to take it when I tried many times to convince them to keep it. Some of you have been with me when that happens. So I've got backup. So we'd have to all be lying. This can happen. It takes the power of the Spirit of God at, the, at work in someone's heart, to be sure. Because begging for the chance to give is not a natural reaction. It's not a normal human behavior. Normally, we're begging for someone to leave us alone so that we don't have to give, right? That's, that's more natural. That's more typical. Um, it's not just money either. Just, just the other night, uh, there was a man struggling with homelessness, and he came up to my truck, and um, we were serving ham hock and beans and cornbread. Who's had ham hock and beans in this room? Let me see. Okay, wow. Um, I really hated it when I was a kid because my granddad made it, and he thought it was really, really good. And I don't know what was wrong with his or if just when I was a kid, like, t your tastes are different, but I would pour so much vinegar in that ham hock and beans that it just tasted like vinegar because that was better than the taste of the ham hock and beans to me. However, this ham hock and beans we were serving the other night was real good. And uh, I, I tasted it to check, so it was good. But um, this, uh, this gentleman came up, and he, he opened up his, his little bag that he had, and uh, he pulled out like six or seven little bags of oyster crackers. And he said, uh, you, guys, you guys just blessed me with this meal, and I haven't eaten something like this this good in a long time. So would you guys please take these crackers that I got and, and bless somebody else with them? And you would think I would know better by now, but like a dummy, I, I tried to convince him that at first, like, hey, man, we've got plenty to give out. You know, you, you keep those crackers, because I'm, I'm in a position of a guy that's got a truck full of cornbread and, and ham hock and beans, and this guy wants to give me these seven packs of crackers that I don't know where he got them out of a garbage can or whatever. Somebody gave them to him, but, you know, that's, he's running on that. You know what I mean? He, he's not got a whole lot else to give, but, but... <laughs> He wanted to get them, so I tried to convince him to keep them at first, but then when, when I did that, and I looked at his face, and I saw how disappointed he was, and how much he, he like truly desired to give and to help someone else because, because of what God was doing in his heart at that very moment, I, I noticed that, and I realized I'd messed up, and so I said, hey man, you know what, we could use those, somebody will really appreciate having some crackers with their beans, and I, and I gathered up the bags and made sure to set them off to the side, and um, I could just see in his face when I received that gift from him, as much as I still didn't want to, right? Because I'm, I'm going to go home that day, crack open my fridge, and oyster crackers last, you know, I probably got 
leftover meatloaf or something in there. Like, I'm, I'm doing great. And this guy wants to give me his, his seven-pack of oyster crackers. It's, st- it's still very hard for me to receive that from him. And, and I'm going to be honest with you. Um, we didn't need those crackers, but he needed to give them. That's the truth. And I could tell on his face when I received them how much joy it brought him that somebody received that gift, that he was able to give. Um, I'm, I'm just telling you, when, when the Spirit of God grabs your heart, begging to give is not as crazy as it sounds. I've seen it happen. Uh, Paul expresses this same idea in verse 17. Let's just read that real quick. Uh, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. It says, not that I seek the gift itself, right? That's, that's what I want to focus on. Not that I seek the gift itself. We didn't need the crackers, but he really needed to give them. Uh, and, and many commentators say that the offering the Philippians sent that Paul is addressing here, and, and, and even the one he's addressing when he tells the Corinthians of how incredibly this, this amazing visible grace of God had been poured out through the Philippian church as they, as they gave out of their poverty, so he's, he's bragging to other churches, he's boasting in the Lord to other churches uh, about the grace of God in the, in the Philippians. He's, he's making a point to thank them here again uh, for, for their generosity, motivated by, by love and by the gospel. Uh, but but most, people, most people I've seen would, would say that that offering they sent was, was probably not very much. It wasn't like they sent a big treasure chest because they didn't have it. They were, they were flat, broken, struggling themselves. And the reality is this offering they sent probably had very little effect on Paul's physical situation. But you see, the apostle not only mentions it here in Philippians, but in letters to other churches, because this joy-filled, love-motivated, extravagant generosity was about so much more than the amount they gave. It was about how and why they gave. How they gave showed Paul Visible and undeniable evidence of the grace of God and the truth of the gospel, changing them to be more like Jesus. One of the brothers in community group this week had a really beautiful observation about this and along these lines. Um, you know, Paul, for, for a guy who had literally given his entire life to preach the gospel and plant churches throughout the ancient world, this generosity by the Philippians had to have been an incredible encouragement to him. I think that's why he's writing to other churches about it. That's why he's mentioning it here again. You guys know you were the only ones that did this, and you did it out of poverty. You did it out of, you had joy as you did it, even though you were scraping it together because you didn't have much. Um, you, you, can just, you, you can understand how this would be such an encouragement to him. And this is what this brother in community group said. It, it was deep. He said, Speaking of Paul, and this came out of last week in the contentment, but it's, you know, it's the same flow of thought, and he's, he's, he's kind of revisiting it here where we're, where we're talking now. He said, as a teacher and a leader, I'm sure it encouraged Paul to see that his teachings and leadership had actually had the effect he was hoping for. I knew it was a powerful truth when he said it, but I've really only grown more encouraged by it the longer I've thought about it. The bottom line here is, the extravagant, gospel-motivated, joy-filled generosity of the Philippian church. It touched Paul. It helped him. Yes, whatever little bit they got together 
and, and gave him, I'm sure that was helpful, but the thing that helped him was not the gift. That's what he said. I'm not seeking the gift itself. That's not my focus. What I'm focused on is what the fact that you guys gave like that says about what Jesus is doing in your heart, right? This is the most vibrant and visible evidence we could come up with that when I came to Philippi and planted a church and preached the gospel, that the Holy Spirit actually did a work in that town and a real church of God has sprung forth because you folks are willing to give joyfully out of your poverty for the furthering of the gospel. And people that haven't been touched by Christ don't do that. The, the apostle is encouraged, man, through this thing. And you can tell by the way he writes about it to other people and the way he writes about it to them. Verse 16. It says, For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. The mentioning of Thessalonica is important. Um, they knew why. We might miss it. But Thessalonica was the next town Paul likely visited after leaving Philippi. It was very close geographically. And so... Uh, we see that um, this gospel-motivated generosity that sprung forth out of the Philippian church, it happened immediately, right? Like Paul left town, got to the next town that what you know, a week's journey maybe. Uh, he, he gets there, and it's not, he's not there long, and there's already gifts coming from the Philippian, the, the poor, broken Philippian church that doesn't even have much resources, has already come together, done whatever it it, it they needed to do whatever the cost was. They got it together, and they were already sending gifts so that Paul would be supported as he went to preach the gospel in the next town. And so um, the, the reason he mentions uh, Thessalonica is he's, he's further driving home this point, right? That not only was there this incredible change that happened when the gospel reached the Philippians, um, but it didn't take long for the implications of the gospel to begin to unfurl uh, in, amongst them. And so he is thanking this church that he loved, not so much for the gifts themselves, but what they're giving communicated to him and to others. Because not only was Paul encouraged by the fact that the gospel had, had so changed these people that they were begging for the opportunity to participate in the privilege of supporting him as he goes to preach the gospel. Just let those words sit upon you as a judge, right? Can we just do that for a second? The word is supposed to be a mirror. Let's hold it up and let's think about the fact that the Philippian church begged for the opportunity to participate in the privilege of supporting the saints. Woo! Does, does that explain or describe my thoughts towards generosity on most days? That I'm begging for the privilege of cracking open my moth-filled wallet to give somebody something. No, I normally only have receipts in my wallet, but so that's not really the point. The point is generosity. It means I've spent money. But uh, the point is that we, we, need, we need to let that description be a standard for us. We need to judge ourselves against it. The Philippians received and believed the gospel with gladness. And one of the ways we can tell that their faith was real and genuine was that extravagant and joyous generosity flowed from them immediately, even in the midst of their own poverty and struggle. Let me pause for a second. I, I Hopefully, I have enough credibility in this area that, that nobody's thinking this, but 
I don't know how most people deal with these verses. Maybe they come up with some other deal so that it avoids having to speak in front of a bunch of people again about them being generous in light of the gospel because a lot of times people don't like that. I'm just telling you right now, there's only one way to see this. There's only one way to understand what Paul's saying here. And it is very, very clear that what he's doing is thanking them for not not just the gift, and the gift again was probably pretty insignificant, but what that generosity communicated and how their generosity, not only that, here's the thing, like it propelled the gospel forward more so because of how they did it than what they did. Yes, them giving probably provided some of Paul's physical needs, probably a few of them, but what it did is it it, is it helped blow wind into the sails of kingdom expansion because as Paul rolls into the next town, there's somebody running after him from Philippi already like, hey, hey, Pastor Paul, we got, we got an offering together. We want to support what's going on here at this church in this whole other city. This isn't, this isn't our church. This isn't our group of people, but, but we gathered what we could out of what we got because we know you're about to come and preach the gospel here. and We want to help with that. I, I don't know if they... It doesn't explain it here. I don't know if Paul was like, hold on, guys. I just stayed with you for a while. I know how poor you are, and I know how bad you got it going on. I don't know if Paul tried to turn them away like I have before with people. Maybe. I don't know why they end up having to beg about it. Hopefully, he made the same mistake I did, and I'm not as dumb as I feel when I do that. I'm not going to do it anymore, though. I'm going to be led by the Spirit better. But what I'm saying is these folks, out of their poverty, ended up chasing Paul down and begging to be a part of what they described as the privilege of supporting gospel ministry, supporting the saints. Praise God. And, and imagine what that spoke to, even, and we're going to talk about this more in a little bit, even that Thessalonian church, right, that, that now Paul was beginning. <laughs> Here's somebody from another town showing up with gifts to help get this work going. What, what did that speak about the reality of this gospel Paul was just beginning to unpack and preach in this new city? What it probably said is, Wow, there might be something real to this. Because I just watched a guy, you know, hike for a week to come and, and bring gifts from a town that we know is poor because they want to support this, this message. Maybe there's something legit to this. What would cause a human to do that? Why, when someone turns down that gift or tries to push it away or say, hey, go use that for your guys' ministry or whatever, why would someone argue and why would someone beg to be able to give? Probably because their heart's been changed and there's something supernatural is happening because we don't do that, right? I mean, let's be honest, all right? Verse 17. Um, wait, let, let me finish this. The Philippians received and believed the gospel with gladness, and one of the ways we can tell their faith was real and genuine was that extravagant and joyous generosity flowed from them immediately even in the midst of their own poverty and struggle. I don't know if I said that already, but I'm going to say it again because that's real good. You understand what I'm saying? Do you understand what Paul's saying here? Maybe, if I've not made it clear, let me make it really crystal clear. One of the ways to tell whether or not you've actually come to know this Savior that the Philippians came to know is whether or not you're generous like this. Now, the goal of that statement is not to cause you to question your salvation. The goal is to make better and more clear what it looks like to really follow after the master. Because 
for the Philippians, apparently the arithmetic was very easy. Two plus two is four. Uh, God coming down to earth, living a perfect life, then sacrificing himself for our sins, rising from the grave and then inviting us by faith, that equals I should be generous and pour out my life in response to that. I think sometimes for us the arithmetic is more complicated. We try to turn it into algebra. It's really not. It's very easy. This is addition. What God has done and who God is equals we worship and lay down everything for him and should joyously open our hands and be able to give. If we understand that the very breath we breathe belongs to him anyways, we are stewards only of anything that we've been given. Clearly, these truths had so penetrated the Philippians' heart that they responded in such a way that not only blessed uh, the, the guy that came and planted the church there, Paul, but uh, really it, 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 in it, their generosity in itself preached the gospel. You see that. It would have, it would have encouraged people that heard that this poor church uh, was gathering up resources to propel the gospel forward, were begging for the opportunity uh, to, to give. It would, have, it would have at least opened up, softened somebody's heart, or opened their ear to the, the possibility. Of, if somebody's acting like that, maybe there's something to this. Maybe I need to listen again. Maybe this Jesus really is changing people like these Christians are claiming. But when we're stingy, we end up preaching a counter message, right? All right. Verse 17. Uh, so we pretty much covered the first half of this verse, but let's, let's look at the second half. Um, here's what it says. I'll just read the whole thing. Not that I seek the gift itself. So we already talked about that. It's not, it's not even clear that Paul needed the gift, but what, that, what their giving communicated, what it proved, what it showed about the fruitfulness of the gospel in that place. Um, that's, that's what blessed him, mostly. But not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. All right? This language here, but the, the profit that increases to your account, it, 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 there's, there's a couple different ways you could see it in the Greek, but it all, like any of those would come down to this, this same understanding. And it's, it's kind of the same way you would talk about Money made on an investment account. It's, it's language like that, which it, it kind of is obvious here, but it's, that's definitely the connotation. Okay, so he says, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. So what he's saying is, in giving somehow, like, like how an investment account would, would, would grow, and there's, like, you put, you put money in there, and it ends up being a benefit to you later, and, and, and it kind of grows with interest, that's, that's the idea that's wrapped up in this. And so um, that, that can have some problems, and that idea has definitely been abused by some, right? Because if, if, we, keep, if we get to the point where we preach it like, or we talk about it like, oh, God's, God's like the ultimate 401k, so just put a bunch of money in, in towards God's stuff, and then you know, you'll end up having the ballerest mansion in heaven. I, I don't think that's what it means, and I don't think... Um, that's the way we should think about it. We'll, we'll talk about that more in a second. I uh, want to make sure I didn't forget to mention that. Um, here's the reality, though. Jesus talked like this as well, okay? So it's, Paul didn't go wild here and, and start, you know, talking like an investment banker uh, when he should have been talking like a gospel preacher, okay? Uh, let me read this to you. This is Jesus himself, Matthew 6, 19. 
Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The Bible does speak of rewards in heaven. And Jesus seems to be saying here that our actions in this life will affect something of the way we are rewarded in eternity. If, if I'm honest with you, for me, the, the absence of sin and death and pain, along with the presence of peace and joy and, and most of all, King Jesus for eternity, is that's so far beyond what I deserve, and I know that. Like, I have a hard time imagining anything else, like any need for further reward. That's just, that's just me, though. Um, the truth is, both Jesus here and Paul in Philippians are teaching that when we give generously for God's glory, at the bare minimum, he takes notice, okay? He knows not only what we give, but why we give it. There is this idea that you can store up treasure in heaven that is congruent here with what Paul is talking about when he says, you know, I seek for the profit which increases to your account. So there's, there is an eternal benefit to being generous for the right reasons, okay? Um, I, I believe, though, that the benefit or profit to our account described here is not only in eternity, because the more we give joyously and sacrificially, the more free we will be to love God and people here. And why do I say that? Well, I just want to think about this phrase with you for a moment. And This was from the mouth of Jesus. Where your treasure is, your heart is. Where your treasure is, your heart is. And there's a lot of different ways to think about that. But what I think it's saying pretty plainly is, I think we, we normally think, get my heart to this place, and then put my treasure there, right? Like, and, and, and I'm, that makes sense, and to some degree, that's part of the process. But he, he says it different than that. He says, where your treasure is, your heart is. And so I think part of what both Jesus is saying and I think Paul is saying here is, is not just, that, um, not just that, that rewards in eternity will, will be the only, is, is the only reason why we should, we should think in this way. But I think when we, when we dedicate treasure, and, and let's say this, when we speak in terms of generosity, Paul is addressing a financial gift here, um, but the harmony of the scriptures sees generosity in more than just one facet. It's not just financially generous, right? Typically, we identify three ways that generosity flows from the Christian, or should. That would be in investing time, talent, and then treasure, right? So financially is a big piece. I think what Jesus is addressing here, where your treasure is, your heart is, he is addressing finances. Over and over again, the Bible gives us this idea that, that the biggest litmus test, the, the clearest way for you to understand where you really stand in this thing, because it's, can we be honest? It's easy to say, I love God. It's, it's even easy to sing a song. It's easy um, to do a lot of the things that um, people can do and have only somewhat of an association with, with Christ. The reality is, once you start putting your treasure in this thing, once you got skin in the game, you start to find out where your heart really is. And that's what the Bible is saying here. 
I hadn't looked at you guys for a while, so I, I, didn't, realize, I didn't realize how angry you were getting about this. <laughs> I'm just kidding. There's a couple of you. <clears throat> the Lord will deal with you by the end of it. Um, but that's, I'm just, I'm just preaching straight scripture, man. I'm not, I'm not going anywhere to the left or the right. This, this is what the Bible says. Where your treasure is, your heart is. And so I think there, the, the more we give, the more endeared we will be to those things we give towards, right? So yes, I think when we, this idea of, of how Jesus is talking about, you know, don't store up treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy, store them up in heaven where those things can't get to them. Um, then he says, where your treasure is, your heart is also. I, I think the more, the more we give towards the work of God, the more we give towards loving and helping people, I think the more our heart is freed then to do more of that, right? Because as we let go of those things, as we open our hands in a trust-filled act of generosity towards God, less and less do those things have mastery over us, and more and more we're free to then love God more and love people more, and that, that generosity and joy cycle begins. You start to realize, oh, you know what? The Bible was right. It's, it is better for me in every way here and for eternity, to open my hands and give than it is for, for me to close them and hoard everything up for myself, right? Um, when you start to really experience the beauty of trusting God through generosity, experiencing the joy of giving instead of always trying to get, when you really understand that this isn't just pithy statements that were stuck together by old wise sages, but that the very words of God are contained within these scriptures, and, and that the wisdom stands the test of time. And so generosity is good for us. We were built to give, not to constantly look to get. And you will have more joy both in this life and for eternity, the more generous you are. <clears throat> Verse 16, he mentions Thessalonica. <clears throat> um, and, and Paul was able to model for those in Thessalonica the same truths he modeled for the Ephesians because the Philippians helped support him. I realize I just said a lot there. So <clears throat> when Paul went to Thessalonica, he was able to conduct himself in a certain way. It's, this, it's, it's very similar to the way he conducted himself when he came to uh, the town of Ephesus to begin to preach the gospel. You begin to see a model here and a plan that Paul had, a, a kind of missional approach to coming in. And he was able to do that, he's able to do this in Thessalonica because, partially because the Philippians were willing to help support him. Here's what he did. I'm going to read you Acts 20, uh, verses 34 and 35. This is Paul saying farewell to the Ephesian elders, and he's describing how it was he conducted himself in ministry while he was there preaching the gospel to them, okay? So listen, listen to this. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. There's twice in um, Paul's writing to the Thessalonians that he says something very similar to that, that he says, while I was among you, I worked with my hands. We didn't eat any man's bread. Uh, we, we either earned we worked to earn income so that we could be there among you. Either that or they were, receiving, they were receiving support from the Philippians as well, a little bit. But the point is that all of that was a part of the picture. And because the Philippians were generous, 
Paul was able to go to to the Thessalonians, and with a combination of the support they sent and the working of his own hands, he was able to not have to ask them for anything as he preached the gospel to them. Why does that matter? Because, guys, there wasn't there's not, it's not the 1980s isn't where shysters popped out of the woodwork and started trying to exploit people for the sake, or using the gospel and or some contorted, twisted gospel to get money out of people. It was happening then. People were wary of hucksters and shysters coming along with some message trying to get people to give towards it. And so Paul was able to go to the Thessalonians. We know that he also went to the Ephesians. He describes it in, in Acts where I just read it to you. He was able to go into those towns He was able, because he had people that were supporting what he was doing, in addition to that, he was able to work with his hands while he was there. He was able to support himself, and he says through that work, he was able to support the guys that he brought with him who were also on that missionary journey. So he didn't have to go in and right off the bat say, hey, I'm Paul, I'm here to tell you about Jesus. Can I get five bucks? You understand what I'm saying? Do you understand why that's important? He was able to spend time with them, invest in them, build relationship with them, preach the gospel to them until they got to the point, hopefully, that they really truly received it. And then once they did, if the Philippians give us any indication, he probably then wouldn't have to ask for an offering. They'd probably just gather it up and give it to him because they would know that that's going to fuel him to go to the next city, plant the next church, get the gospel to the next group of people. You understand what I'm saying? It's super important that the Philippians were willing to support him. Even if their gift was small, that was a part of the picture of how God kept Paul alive as he preached the truth of the gospel to that next group. He worked with his hands, and he did it on purpose. I think this, this was really part of his strategy. He said, he ministered, I ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. So Paul, Paul was working as he was planning the church. He was working, and not only so that he could eat, but making sure the guys that came with him could eat. And he says, in everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Did Paul not come in and through his conduct begin to set the underpinnings and the foundation for the truth of the gospel? He came in not saying, hey, I'm here to bring you the truth of the gospel. You guys support me. He's like, no, I'm going to come. I'm coming here to bless you with the truth of the gospel, and I'm going to work my guts out to make sure I can do this and be here to serve you. He, he's, he's exemplifying the gospel in the simple fact that he's willing to go at it that way. And the Philippians, in their generosity, were part of making sure that was able to happen. I praise God for that. Um, I, see, I see that as a beautiful model. It is more blessed to give than receive. To the degree those words from Jesus really grab hold of your heart, and you, and you believe them, it's, it's going to determine, really, how far you're going to be able to go experiencing the, the beautiful joy of generosity. Let's look at verse 18. He says, But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice. Well-pleasing to God. This is also pretty, pretty, this is also telling of the fact that this is a real shepherd that really loved these people and was more thankful about their generosity than, than the fact that they sent him whatever they sent him. Because if you see the way that, that, that liars and charlatans do it normally, 
He would never have put that line in there and said, I'm, I'm fully supplied. I'm amply supplied. Thank you for what you sent. He would have sent back a letter that said, thank you for what you sent. Now we've got this other project. Um, you know, my, I need some extra seats in my plane. Could you send me another $50,000 or whatever it is, right? Like all this, they're, they're, and, they're, and unfortunately, I've, I've, seen, I've seen like news shows and stuff. They'll, they'll, they'll start corresponding with one of these just absolutely disgusting fake ministries that, that just prey upon people. And so they'll, they'll send in this thing and, and they'll promise, you know, here, just, just send us a postcard with your name on it and we'll, we'll send you this rock that Jesus touched way back in the day and it'll heal all your woes and it'll make you a millionaire. And so whatever the thing is, right? A, a prayer cloth or whatever they're, whatever they're pushing. And so, they'll, then, so then they send them that thing, but then when, when they send them the thing that they said would be free, there's also an offering envelope with a little thing in there that says, well, if you really want God to bless you, you know, you should partner with our ministry. And if you put a dollar in here, you know, um, and, and, and send it to us, then, then we'll pray over that dollar and, and we'll, we'll believe it's going to multiply. And they, they got all these tricks, man. They got, it's just, and they'll keep going back and forth. And they keep having these, these little creative, deceptive ways to try to pull money out of people. That's obviously not what this guy's doing. This is not, this is not another attempt by some charlatan to exploit the gospel or exploit the truth of the word, uh, to cheat people. He says, I'm amply supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, it's a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. He's like, I've got what I need. Thank you, guys. Um, really, really grateful, not just seeing what else he can get out of them. That's, that's the heart of a true shepherd right there. Um, so he says that, uh, and I want to focus in here. He says, what, um, I've got it from Epaphroditus, what you have sent. It's a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Um, this language is, is intentional, and it's, it's a comparison to uh, sacrifices in the Old Testament. The same, very same language was used several times um, in is some in Genesis, Leviticus, Exodus, and a couple other places. This, this, this sweet-smelling... Um, aroma and acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, that same language is used to describe things in the Old Testament. And so that intentionally was conjuring for them an image of, of Old Testament sacrifice. Um, and, and that in, 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 there were similarities between that, but I think the intention here is really to point out and should be for us to understand there's a real big difference between the, the sweet-smelling aroma of the incense and the, and the animals that were burned um, at the tabernacle and other times throughout Old Testament history as God was foreshadowing the coming of Christ. Um, the, the truth is, we, we get to give now with much more joy. Because they, in the Old Testament, when they were giving sacrifices that were a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord, that were, that were acceptable and pleasing to Him, when they gave those they gave to atone for sin. We give because our sin has been atoned for. And that's a beautiful difference. We still have this, we still have an ability to give sacrificially the way they did in, in the Old Testament. When, when people brought those, those animals for sacrifice, it was, it, it was not a light thing, man. That, that caught, every single person that participated in that, it cost them deeply. That was a sacrifice. And what they were doing is they were doing it in that time to atone for their sins, the sins of their family, the sins of the people. 
All of that, of course, was just a foreshadowing. That, never, that, that system, really what that was doing was a tutor. It was, it, was, it was showing them and showing us throughout the rest of the redemptive history of God our need for a Savior, our need for something better than that animal sacrifice system. But in that time, they, they were dealing with what God had given them, the parameters he had given for them, and they, they would give to atone for sin. We get to give because our sin has already been atoned for. And so I'm sure they were joyful, right? They, God could have wiped them out. He could have not given them the sacrifice system. There could have been no way to atone for sin. And so the right attitude for them is even as they bring that very costly animal, unblemished, one-year-old, a young, vigorous animal, as they bring that as sacrifice to God for the atonement of sin, uh, they should have had joy even in that. But how much more us, dear friends, how much more should we be able to offer sweet aromas of sacrifice to God through, through time, through talent, through finances, when we lay down things for the sake of the building of the kingdom and, and the, the pushing forward of God's gospel, um, it, sh- it should be far more joyous for us. We're not giving to try to atone for sin. We're giving because our sin has been atoned for. For that I am thankful. Uh, the very same language is also used to describe what Jesus did for us in Ephesians 5.2. Let me read this to you. And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And so again, all of our giving, all of our love, all of our joy, all of these things, they are a response to what Jesus has already done. Yes, there is laid upon us this, this beautiful privilege of being able to give to God by giving to people, by giving to the work of the ministry, by giving to the building of his kingdom, giving to gospel ministry as the Philippians did. Yes, that, that requirement of, of extravagant generosity lays upon us, but it is not some arbitrary rule that just hangs out there, um, just, and it's just just because I said so. And God could do that. If he wanted to make a rule and say, just because I said so, it's not, it's not a great parenting move, right? And I've done it, like, because I'm a finite human, but when I say to my kids, don't do that. Why? Because I said so. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have time to explain it to you right now. It'd be better probably if I took the time to explain it to them. Sometimes you can't do that. But here's the thing. I'm a finite human, so it's, you know, to some degree, I, I can, it's fair for my kids to expect an, an explanation, especially the older they get, but, but God himself could just say, this is what it is, period, right? Because he's God, omnipotent, omniscient, creator, kind of like he spoke and everything came into existence. So when he says something, he, he doesn't have to give a reason why. But the beauty is we do have, a, we do have a, a responsibility upon us as believers in the truth of the gospel to be generous. But, it's, but we have a why. He didn't say be generous, it's because of what this says right here, right? And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Anytime we give, anytime we participate in the beauty of generosity, fueled by the love of God, it's because we are responding to something far more generous than we could ever do. God will never be in our debt, Right? He has already given so much that there's, there's no amount of giving we could do that would catch us up. And yet he's so good, not only has he done enough that we could give of ourselves forever and never pass him in generosity, but then he continues to give. 
He continues to pour out blessing upon us. He continues to walk with us. He continues to say, I'm going to provide for your needs, as we'll see more in just a second. So not only, not only is that, that language of sacrifice discussed in the Old Testament, we see it here, the way Paul describes the Philippians' gift, but all of that uh, is subject to and motivated by the fact that Christ gave himself as a fragrant aroma for us. Why did he do that, friends? Why did Christ come and give himself? Because we had a real serious problem. That problem was sin. Every single one of us is a sinner by nature and choice. God created us perfectly, put our first parents in a garden, gave them a sweet gig. You guys hang out here, hang out with me, make sure you know everything's cool with the animals, we'll be good. Just don't touch that tree. Don't eat of that tree right there, and we'll be fine. What'd we do? Ran right over there, right? Let, let the deceiver get in their ear, start talking about, well, here's what you don't understand. You know, God just, God's trying to hold something good from you. He doesn't want you to be able to understand things like he does, you know. I mean, doesn't it look good? Did God really say that? It's, it's that kind of stuff. Same stuff we fall for today. Sin entered the world, and from that point forward, every single one of us is born into sin. We're sin by nature and by choice. And uh, the beauty is at the very same time, the the very moment our first parents spit in the face of God, defied him, turned their backs on him, that very moment God began to roll out the redemption plan. He already knew it. He knew exactly what was going to go on. He wasn't surprised by anything, but... I see so much grace and mercy in the fact that he even, he let us in to understand. I mean, something that bad, you think he'd have let us sit on it for a while and wonder if he was ever going to rescue us. But immediately, he says, here's what's going to happen to you, serpent. There's going to be beef between you and her seed. You're going you're gonna to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Right then, right at the point of the infraction, God begins to preach the gospel to us. Begins to tell us there's hope. Hold on. It's going to be all right. Then he calls this guy Abraham, right? And he does this crazy thing with Abraham where he has him go go get some animals and they cut him in half. And and Abraham, you know, is going to walk through it, but God puts him to sleep. And he he comes as this, this, this smoke and this fire and he passes through the thing, right? He's preaching the gospel in that, in that right there, because what was going on is 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 this. This whole sacrifice thing, what was happening in that moment, and this isn't very long after <laughs> our initial mess up, he's, he's, dealing with, he's dealing with Abraham, he calls him out, and then he, does, he sets this contract with him by doing this. He, he, they, he cuts the animals, not the birds, but he cuts the rest of them, cuts them in half, and, they're gonna, and, and he's going to, typically what would happen is that the lesser of the two people in the contract would walk through the thing, and what they're saying when they would cut those animals in half the way the covenant was being cut is, is they were saying, I'm going to walk through this, and if I don't do what I'm saying I'm supposed to do in this thing, that I, I should, what happened to these animals should happen to me. That, I, that I'll be laid to waste and cut down. Here's the crazy thing. If, if anything, sometimes both people would walk through those pieces of animal, but never just the greater of the two. Sometimes the lesser of the two in the, in the contract would do it, Sometimes both of them, but never just the guy that was the king in the thing or the, 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 the more important of the two people making the contract. What, is, what does God do? Puts Abraham to sleep. He walks through it. And what's he saying? He's saying, 
I know you're not going to keep up your end. And what happened to these animals is going to happen to me. And it did, didn't it? That's why Jesus had to come. Jesus come, got slaughtered just like those animals. The covenant was kept from all the way back then. I'm just talking to you about the redemptive plan of God. I'm talking about the fact that if you really understand, starting from Genesis, moving on forward, how many ways God foreshadowed what he was going to do. You can't, you couldn't make this stuff up, man. The, the, the people that God used to write the scriptures, they could have never been clever enough to come up with all of these things that the scriptures lays out and all of it come and culminate in what Jesus came and did. Sin was our problem. Romans 6 says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus came to solve the problem of sin, to keep the covenant that God made with us, and he did it perfectly. He lived the perfect life we couldn't, died the death that we should have. We should have had to walk through those pieces. We should have had that been laid to waste for our sin, but Jesus took the punishment because God knew we couldn't. And somehow, in his arithmetic, we're worth it. I got to be honest with you. I look in a mirror, I don't see it. I'm just glad he does. He's a good God, people. Verse 19 says, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We've heard that one before, haven't we? And this is true. This is a beautiful verse. This is something we, we should cling to. It's a beautiful promise of God. Um, and, and it's obvious that the Philippians believed it. Uh, why do I say that? Well, if they really believed that uh, God is able and willing to supply their needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, if, if you really trust that he has the, the power and the willingness to back that statement up, then it really, it does free you to be more generous. You don't feel like you have to hoard and build up tall, unscalable walls like Proverbs says the rich man does in his mind. If I stack up a bunch of Benjamins, then if bad stuff happens, I can throw those at it and solve the problem, right? Um, I'm not saying we shouldn't use wisdom. I'm saying we shouldn't save money. The Bible also talks about that, but it's about what's going on in your heart. Are you saving that money because you don't trust that God's going to take care of you? Or are you saving that money because you know there's going to be some opportunity that comes along to be extravagantly generous for the sake of the gospel? Or to pass on to you know, generations like, uh, you know, Proverbs also talks about a, a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children, right? I think that's a gospel inheritance as much as it is finances, but um, we shouldn't be building unscalable walls or trying to. We shouldn't be building our own Tower of Babel to talk, you know, show people how awesome we are. Um, if we trust God and we trust this promise that he uh, is, is going to supply for all of our needs according to his riches, um, it, that's going to free us even more to be more generous with more joy, less begrudging. This is true, and this promise is beautiful, but we must be wise enough to thank God that he knows our needs, oftentimes better than we do. You may need a job, and if that is true, God will lead you and help you with that. God, I know all kinds of stories of people getting awesome jobs they weren't qualified for because God opened some door. And it was supernatural and you couldn't deny it. Praise God, that could happen. But you should also know that what you may need is to lose a job if that job becomes an idol for you. 
Can we read the verse again? I can tell you're confused. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You catch, you smelling what I'm putting down now? Here's the deal, man. You, we need to be wise enough to understand he knows our needs better than we do. And so sometimes the way God provides for your need may be totally different than what you think should happen or what you think you need. Sometimes you don't know what you need. Are you humble enough to acknowledge that? Are you humble enough to acknowledge that sometimes God knows better than you do? You have blind spots. And uh, that means that sometimes God may provide for your needs in ways that you didn't see coming. It, it may not mean diamonds raining down in your bedroom after you pray. Okay? That's probably not what it's going to look like. not saying it couldn't, but that would be unlikely. Okay? Um, God knows what we actually need, right? What we actually need, not just daily bread, but contentment and gratitude and focus upon Jesus and his kingdom. And here's what's beautiful. God promises, he tells us in Matthew 6, quit worrying, right? I take care of the sparrows. I take care of the lilies of the field. I'm going to take care of you. I know, he says the same thing, didn't he? I know what you need, so quit worrying about that. However, he knows that we don't just need daily bread. We don't just need clothing. What we need, most of all, is contentment and gratitude and focus upon Jesus and his kingdom. And so he will give you what you need. Sometimes what you need is to lose something so that your focus can be reoriented. Sometimes what you need is to be brought a little lower so that you can understand what things are really about. Sometimes what you need is a job and financial help, somebody to bless you, and, and if that's what you need, and that's going to actually be what's going to help you move further along um, in loving God, loving people, and doing his mission, then he'll provide for those needs too. I'm thankful he's promised that he knows we need daily bread. He knows we got to eat. He knows we need clothes on our back. He knows we have physical needs. He created us. He has promised to provide for those. Amen. Can we say amen to that? That's not, we're not, that is absolutely a promise of God. He will take care of those needs. But he will also take care of the needs you don't know you have. And that might be less fun. Wee, right? Okay. I'm glad about it, man. I know I need him to know my needs better than me. Because I don't know everything, man. Sometimes I am, I, am, I am foolish. Sometimes I'm not seeing it right. But he is, and he has promised me, according to his riches and glory, man, he's going to take care of me. Whatever that means, whether it means lift me up or sit me down, praise God that he loves us. And he's not some absentee dad that just throws stuff at us. Here, go to the store and buy yourself something. You guys know about that parent, right? That's, that's not a parent. That's not someone that really loves their kid. Somebody that really loves their kid is going to say, no, there's weeds in the garden, man. Go pick those. And if you pick enough of them, then maybe I'll buy you the bike. You know what I'm saying? They teach them what hard work is about, like Paul talked to us about. They don't just hand them everything. They don't treat wants as needs. Um, and a good parent is in love is willing to do whatever is necessary for the good of that child. And God is that kind of parent, the best one. He's perfect. Praise God. Um, 
I don't, hopefully you guys know this, this is, this is Palm Sunday, so that's always the Sunday right before Easter, um, and, and there's, a, there's a Bible story surrounding that that illustrates this, I won't take long. The people of that day, right, so Jesus tells his disciples, he, there's a prophecy in Zechariah that this would go down exactly like it did hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene, yet another reason why I think the Bible's self-authenticating, don't have time for that. Uh, so he says, go, there's a, there's a donkey, go and tie it, if somebody questions you, say the Lord has need of it. I've tried that before. It doesn't work for me. Try to just grab something. Hey, the Lord has need of this. <laughs> well, I have need of the fifteen dollars that cost, so uh, it doesn't work for me. Anyways, I'm not Jesus, so it, it makes sense. Um, but so they bring the donkey, and then he essentially he's coming in. He's coming into Jerusalem. He's riding upon this donkey, just like said in, in the Old Testament, just like it was prophesied. And and people start to start to sing Hosanna, which. A lot of times people think that's just another word for hallelujah. It's not really. It's like from a Hebrew derivative, it's kind of like, please save us. It's a call for salvation. So they knew he was the Messiah and they were celebrating. So people are taking the cloaks off their back. They're laying them down so that the feet of the donkey that he's riding on don't touch the dirt. This is the kind of admiration they had for this Messiah, how excited they were for his arrival. They're going and cutting down palm branches, getting out ahead of him. I mean, this is like rose petals, and they're dropping that stuff on the ground to make sure the donkey's feet don't touch the dirt because they have this much respect and admiration for this Messiah. Their, their hopes are being fulfilled, so they think. But he, he rides in, and everyone's like, he's here, son of David, the one we've been waiting for. Yes, he's finally going he's, he's to rise up and help us militarily overtake these Romans and will not be oppressed anymore. This is going to be awesome. And so like, the crowd calms down. And Jesus is like, no, no, I'm not doing that, actually. That's, that's not what I'm here for. See, what they, they, they thought they knew their need. And they were willing to worship. Woo, he came to solve my need. Yay! But what they didn't know is they needed something different than they thought they needed. They, th- they thought they needed freedom from Roman oppressors. What they really needed was freedom from that ancient enemy, sin and death. And he came to address that problem. And you know what's really sad? And we do this too. The same people that were taking the clothes off their back to make sure his donkey's feet didn't touch the ground, a few days later were screaming, crucify him! Because he didn't come and meet the need they thought they had. Friends, can we commit not to do that right now? Can we let the conviction of that fact sit upon us and can we acknowledge that we do that sometimes? Maybe you've never yelled crucify him, but I guarantee you there's been some time you've at least... Let the lie of disappointment creep into the back of your mind and tell you, I had this need. God said he would meet it, and he didn't. You listen to me right now. God has met absolutely every need you actually have according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Don't you dare listen to that serpent, the liar, man. And don't be somebody that will lay your cloak down one day. Yay, God's going to meet my needs. But he doesn't do it like you think he should. And several days later, you want to start yelling, crucify him. He is, he is the king of glory, and he's true to his word. Sometimes we can't see it for that. Let's acknowledge that and decide to worship because he can see things we can't see. I'm so stoked that his perspective is higher than mine. C- can you get excited about that? I wish you would. I wish you'd care about that. I wish that would drive you to worship, that the God you worship is not like you. He's bigger than you, and he's smarter than you, He's eternal. He's always existed and always will. He knows absolutely everything that's going to happen, and he knows your needs better than you do, man. He can see into the deep chambers of your heart, those places that you thought you've locked away and thrown away, things that you don't even, you don't even know. He knows, man. He knows the future, the past, every detail of the present, and he's working it all. 
We've got a plan. Let's not be like that crowd, please. Let's not decide because God's not meeting our needs, needs we think we have the way we think he should. I want, I want to be someone that's laying palm branches in front of him. I don't care how far he wants to ride. You want to ride around the world twice, man? I will run in front of you and cut palm branches because you are the king of glory. And I don't want his donkey's feet to hit the ground. He's worthy of that kind of worship, man. I'll lay down in the mud puddle, let his donkey step on my back to make sure the king is given the reverence and respect he deserves. That's the kind of worship this king deserves. Only. Verse 20. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's, it's really no surprise that Paul continues his flow of thought, and, and as he's thinking through this thing, that, that it comes down to the glory of God for him. Um, what he's saying here is, is, is may God be glorified in, in what has already occurred. May God be glorified in this generosity that's already sprung forth as a result of the gospel changing your guys' hearts. May that continue to reverberate through the ancient world. May more people hear about the fact that you guys were poor and busted and, and had no business really trying to put an offering together for anybody because you guys were in serious trouble, but because of what the gospel did in your heart, may God be glorified as that story goes forth. May that be the case, but also as you continue to obey in these things, as you continue to live out and walk out joy-filled generosity in light of the gospel, may God be glorified in that. And the truth is, friends, when the believers of God, when the children of God do walk out joy-filled, love-motivated generosity because of the gospel, God is glorified every time. That's what's at stake here. It's the glory of God. I want to glorify God with my life. Be more generous. I'll just help you right now. Make it quick for you. Well, I have a hard time with that. Well, then think more about the gospel. If you'll think more about the gospel, you'll get more generous. If you struggle with generosity and you think more about how generous God has been with you in Christ, your, your heart will soften. Your joy will increase at the opportunity to give. And the great hope is at some point you'll get so crazy, happy, and joyful and full of love for God that you would beg someone to let you give if they were rejecting your gift. That's where it got for them. I don't think it's being recorded here because it was wrong. <laughs> Amen. All right. Um, God is glorified in, in love-motivated generosity. Amen. Uh, verse 21 and 22 says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Uh, the use of the word saints here is just one example of how the scriptures do not differentiate super Christians as saints and uh, the rest of us as just like plain old regular believers, as some religions do. Just wanted to point that out to you. The Bible sees saints, if, if you have turned from sin to trust in Jesus, uh, if the truth of the gospel uh, has, has made you a follower uh, and a son or daughter of God, then you are a saint of God, okay? That's not reserved for super Christians that do supposedly super things, um, that's not how the Bible sees that. Uh, this mention of Caesar's household is pretty epic. Uh, and it really, it, it seems, you know, Paul's just closing out the letter here. And we could be like, okay, here's the pleasantries at the end. What, surely he won't preach long about that. And I won't preach long about it. But there's something here we need to see. 
all right? He says, the brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Okay, what does that, what does that tell us? It tells us that while Paul has been imprisoned, that part of what has happened is God has used his imprisonment and his proximity to those in Caesar's household. Now, we don't know for sure if this is actually family members of Caesar or if this is slaves and servants in Caesar's household. They all would have been referenced that way, and so it may, it, it could be a mixture of that. We don't, we don't really know, but the bottom line is there are those that in Caesar's household, like the guy in that time, there are people that now serve close to him that have come to believe the gospel because of Paul's imprisonment. What does that tell us? It tells us that God can use your tough spot in many ways you would never imagine. Here's the truth. Some of you think of school or your job or whatever your situation is like a prison. And you feel like if you could just get out of that situation, you could do something for Jesus. This is not how God sees it. Paul was sitting in a jail uh, awaiting potentially a death sentence for the preaching of the gospel. And you gotta get, you got to get this, the, the irony of this. Why is he in jail for preaching the gospel? What's he obviously doing while he's in jail if Caesar's household is starting to get saved? He's still preaching the gospel, man. This guy just don't care. You want to talk about YOLO, he's all about it. Whatever. Just keeps on going, man. And, and that's what I'm saying to you. And, and I'm, not saying, I'm not saying out of that you, you go into your job and, and get yourself fired by standing on a lunch table in the break room and, you know, preaching some, some brimstone and fire sermon. But here's, here's the thing, man. I, I think we need to understand from this that, if, if, I mean, this is like a much tougher spot probably than you're in, if I can just say that, right? Like being, being in a room in prison for the preaching of the gospel. I know your job might be tough. I know school might be rough for you. I know your family situation might be difficult, and you might see that like a prison that would shut you down from having gospel effectiveness. Um, some of you believe it's, you know, you're in the situation you're in because of choices you made, and so you're like, you know, I have to wait till I get out of this situation before I can do something for the Lord. Listen, man, I don't know another way to say it. Paul was in jail for preaching the gospel, and the brother was still preaching the gospel, and, and, and God was using it. it. It was still effective, right? And so, Whatever you imagine your limitations to be because of your situation, I would just pray, I, please look at this. Please see how God sees this and what he's willing to do uh, with your willingness in the midst of an imperfect situation. I know for some of you, it's super hard at your job to, maybe you can't preach a sermon to somebody, but that's not what's required, man. Paul, Paul came into Thessalonica and started to lay the groundwork of the gospel by doing what? Working hard. You can work hard at your job and show something of the integrity of God. You can be the guy that doesn't ride the clock. Last 15 minutes, right? You're over there hiding behind the snack machine with the other losers. You know what I mean? Don't be that guy. Don't be that lady. You're not the office gossip. You're not the, you're not the one that's always late and, and, and you know, can't be depended upon. Be somebody that works just, just through that hard work, just through having integrity. You can begin to lay the groundwork of opening somebody's heart to the gospel. Character has so much to do with whether or not people will listen to you. We, we need to see that in all of these things that we seem, we, we tend to think are mundane, we can, we can begin to plant seeds that God then can water. He can use us to water them, or, or it may simply be that while you're at the job you're at right now, 
You're, you're a hard worker that's always on time. You're kind. When situations go crazy and everyone else is, is cussing and, and yelling at each other, you're the one that brings peace to the thing. Maybe you never once get to mention the name of Jesus in that context, but they know you're a Christian. They might leave that job, and 10 years later, God come along and water that seed that was planted when they begin to understand, hmm, that, maybe all they got from it is, you know what, that, that guy had so much integrity. He said he was a Christ follower. I wonder if there's a connection there. That seed could sit there, and it could not germinate for 10 years, man, until God comes and somebody else comes along and waters that thing. Serve God where you're at. That's the whole point. Paul didn't stop. Paul didn't stop living for Jesus while he was in jail for Jesus, and part of Caesar's household started to get saved. Who knows what the impact of that was in the ancient world, how that played into the overall redemptive plan of God throughout history? I assume it was a big deal. Praise God. I hope you can take that and do something with it. Verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This letter began with a greeting in the grace of God and it ends with a prayer of grace again. This is fitting because the joy and peace and freedom this letter encourages us towards is only possible through the grace of God, which comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Any joy, any peace, any, uh, any lack of anxiety in our lives, any of the beautiful things that, that are encouraged uh, in this letter to believers, um, any extravagant generosity, any of that, all of it is going to be empowered by the grace and the Spirit of God. And we need to know that. Praise the Lord. May we be a people who exhibit the undeniable marks of grace. May we be recklessly and extravagantly generous as we give our love and lives and finances to God and others. And may we experience the unique joy of generosity that is motivated by love for God and his gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, I thank you so much for the book of Philippians. I thank you um, for the entirety of the scriptures. I thank you, Lord, that they are authoritative. I thank you that you did absolutely guide their writing and uh, that scripture is God-breathed. I thank you for the timeless wisdom contained in this book. Lord, I thank you for the saints here at Love City uh, that have studied this book together. We've journeyed through it together. I thank you, Lord, for the conversations I've had, and I know the others that have happened um, as we've challenged each other and, and we've, we've just let the truths of this beautiful letter uh, change us and have the effect you intended. I thank you, God. I'm, I'm trusting and believing that Love City Church, the folks that have been here for this, uh, the folks that have submitted to this Bible teaching, that they will never be the same again because of the power of your word in their life and your spirit working these things to fruition. God, I ask that we would be people uh, that would be more humble, that we would not think more of ourselves than we ought to. God, I pray that we would be people that would have the same mind that is in Christ Jesus who came, submitted himself to become a human, to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life, then die by the hand of the very ones he came to save. May we walk in that type of humility, in that type of loving sacrifice. Thank you, Lord. May we be people that, um, that constantly think through the, 
gospel paradigm. May we be people that, as we think about our past and all of the things that maybe we would have counted as, as something to, to trumpet, our, our identity, Lord, that, that we, we thought made us great. Lord, may we be able to crumple that up like a piece of trash, like Paul said, and, and, and throw it away. May, may our boasting be in Christ alone. May we understand that it is only what he has done in us that is worthy of being shared. Lord, may we be a people that live totally free of anxiety. I thank you that you've called us in this letter to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and by petition, with thanksgiving, that we could come and make our requests known to you. Thank you that you hear our prayers. Thank you, Lord God, that you are faithful to listen to the prayers of your people and that you answer. Thank you, O oh God, for this encouragement towards generosity. Lord, help us to understand how much it meant to the Apostle Paul that this poor, struggling group of people begged for the chance to give. God, may we let the implications of the gospel so impact us that no one would ever have to twist our arm to be generous. I know that you're working on us, Lord Jesus. You're making us more like you. And you are extravagantly generous. Thank you. Thank you that you don't give up on us. Thank you that you're faithful, Lord, to continue on this journey with us. Thank you that you're patient and long-suffering when we act ignorant. You're so good and you're so merciful. You are worthy of worship. Lord, please help us. Set our eyes where they belong and keep them there. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.